This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Session one, recapturing the Mexico moment. Over the last three years, international news coverage on Mexico has zigzagged from sweeping accolades for structural reforms to strong condemnation over the disappearance of the students from Ayosinapa and the Casablanca corruption scandal. As President Peña Nieto begins the second half of his term, the much lauded Mexico moment seems to have largely disintegrated. This panel will discuss the challenges facing the country and the opportunities that exist to regain the momentum of the Mexico moment. It is my pleasure to introduce the speakers for our session. Our moderator, Chris Wilson, is the deputy director of the Mexico Institute at the Wilson Center, where he leads research and programming on regional economic integration and U.S.-Mexico border affairs. Previously, he worked as a contractor doing Mexico analysis for the U.S. military and as a researcher at the American University's Center for North American Studies. Carlos Capistan is the chief Mexico economist at Bank of America Merrill Lynch in Mexico City. Previously, he served as director for macroeconomic analysis at Banco de Mexico and as director for tax policy evaluation at Mexico's Ministry of Finance and Public Credit. His qualifications are undeniable. After all, he received his master's degree and doctorate in economics from UC San Diego. <laughs> Pablo Chico Hernandez is a division director at Grupo Carrix, the world's largest privately held marine and rail terminal operator. Before joining SSA Marine, of which Grupo Carrix is the parent company, Chico worked for the Promecap in Mexico. Leonardo Curcio is the news director and anchor for Primera Emisión at Enfoque Noticias, with involvements in journalism, teaching, and research. Curcio was named among the 300 most influential leaders in Mexico by Líderes Mexicanos magazine. He has authored and co-authored more than 40 books and 70 scientific articles. Pasconsuelo Márquez Padilla is a professor at the Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México. She's also the editor-in-chief of the Revista Académica at the Centro de Estudios de Investigaciones sobre América del Norte. Her research focuses on federalism, democracy, neoconservatism, and international justice. We invite the speakers to begin. Leonardo. Incidentally, you can speak either from your seats or from the podium. Thank you so, so much. Yeah, let me start the session out. Uh, I'm Chris Wilson from the, the Mexico Institute at the, the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., and I'm just delighted to be here with all of you today. Thank you so much to UCSD uh, and all of the groups that have made this event possible for, for inviting me to take part in it with you. Uh, I'm delighted to be here with our, our panelists. We have just a, a star-studded lineup that covers a huge breadth of material uh, related to Mexico and this moment that, that we've been living in and are still living in uh, that has maybe transformed, but maybe not as much as we think. And I think that'll be one of the, the points of discussion here is, you know, what really was the Mexico moment if it ever existed and has it disappeared if, uh, if there was one. Uh, you know, it was a term that came first from an article written by Enrique Peña Nieto, the president, in The Economist in 2012, shortly before he took office. 
Uh, and then there were another number of other monikers that were invented and thrown around. The Aztec Tiger from the Financial Times articles. Uh, and then maybe the most grandiose of all, uh, the Saving Mexico cover of Time magazine. Uh, so there certainly was a rhetoric that was built up around the beginning of this administration. Uh, and there were some things that happened, structural reforms that had been stuck for many years, uh, certainly built on top of a sound macroeconomic platform uh, that had been built up over decades, uh, some things worth talking about. Uh, there were, of course, uh, a, a turn of the narrative uh, in the, the following year, in 2014, after the first year of office, when we had the case of Plataya with uh, what are supposed or assumed to be extrajudicial killings, the case of Ayotzinapa with the disappearance of 43 students with state involvement at different levels, uh, the case of the Casablanca scandals, a conflict of interest surrounding the purchases of multiple homes uh, by those close to the president. Uh, and the narrative turned very sharply in a different direction. Uh, you know, the, something that we need to make sense of. It's, it's, it's very hard for people, I think, and for myself included, to hold two contradictory concepts in our mind at the exact same time. But perhaps that's what we need to be able to learn to do to understand Mexico today. Uh, and I think that's something that our panel uh, has the immense challenge of, of helping all of us do today. Uh, so without, let me not take up too much time because these are the true experts that we want to hear from and invite Leonardo to start us out uh, with the presentation, a short opening sort of set of slides and, and thoughts on this issue. We'll go down the line and do that and then enter into discussion. Thanks, okay, Leonardo. Thank Good morning. I'm very glad to be once again here in San Diego. Thanks for having me here. I hope you like opera, because uh, today we are going to pay tribute to Verdi. I will compare the Mexican situation with an in Italian drama. Italian drama with a prologue, or a prequel, as we say in contemporary times, and three, three acts. And let me begin by... I'm going to use... This. this is uh, the drama La Forza del Destino. Let me begin by, by the prologue. The music is by Mr. Peña Nieto and librettos written by Gustavo Madero, Jesús Zambrano y Aurelio Nuño. <laughs> so the prologue, the return of the PRI. As you all know, uh, the Peña Nieto won in 2012 by legitimate means the election. The return of the PRI uh, to power, uh, though, was perceived as a risk of, for the consolidation of democracy in Mexico. Many scholars and political analysts, such as Robert Bonner, expressed their fears in that respect, and some of them were relevant, considering the record of the old party in transparency, corruption, and democratic behavior. The reputation of the PRI was tarnished because of its weak commitment to the rule of law, its ambiguity, its um, slippery behavior uh, towards fair election and uh, free press and so on. Those fears were probably misconceptions or prejudices, but at the same time, at the same time were perfectly credible according to the experience. The PRI could not claim innocence in those circumstances. That leads us to the first act. I'm going to call the act the promise. Io prometto, or I promise. The day after the election, Mr. Peña Nieto wrote a very interesting article in the New York Times 
And he wrote, there may be considerable hand, handwriting in the international community that my election somehow signifies a return of the old ways of my party or a diminished commitment in Mexico's efforts against organized, crimes, organized crime and, and drugs. Let's put such worries to rest. That, that was the promise. Well, that was for the international audience, and uh, in order to diminish the domestic fears, he wrote a very vigorous manifesto uh, promising an open, honest, and democratic administration. Suddenly, he dazzled the whole world, assembling the political parties in El Pacto por México, which consists, as you are aware, of a colorful palette of constitutional reforms that I'm sure you are familiar with. The performance was outstanding. It would be unfair to say otherwise. What happened in the second act is interesting because the plot thickens further. What happened in the second, the second act is interesting because we can call it l'amor non corrisposto, or the not reciprocated love. While the international press was casting Enrique Peña Nieto as a global thinker, foreign policy, the great reformer, El País, or even the savior of the country, as time did, something was rotten in the national soul. In the bottom of the Mexican society, the wave of optimism was not shared at all. On the contrary, a mix of chagrin, uh, disappointment, and anger was growing quietly, but systematically, as you can see here in the chart. This is the anger, no? as you can see. So 65% of the population believe that the country is going down the wrong path. Only 21%, as you see in the blue line, of the population consider that we are going that we are following the right track. The approval rate of the president is just the same waltz. As you can see in the, in the chart here, it's almost the same thing. The confidence in the institutional system is seemingly sinking. The parties, Congress, and the president, uh, the, and the president himself, are no longer popular these days. And even worse, they are not reliable. That leads us to the third act, L'Eterno Arcano, or the Endless Enigma. How, how we can explain this gap between the foreseeable benefits of the reforms and the anger, the feeling of disappointment reflected by the polls? In other words, why is the perception of the government performance so negative? After all, the Mexican economy is not doing that bad. In addition to this national dismay, the international press is covering... Mexico with pretty much the same feeling, some Mexican, the Mexican press, but the international press is covering Mexico with the same feeling. Moreover, to some extent, I detect a sense of revenge, kind of, I cheer you on and you betray me or you disappoint me. So the perception is bitterly printed in several articles. You have an example here provided by the Financial, financial Times. I have not a full explanation for this Mexican drama, but I have an array of hints that I would like to share with you this morning. During his annual state, Discurso um, del Informe, President Peña spoke of the events that have shaken his administration as a series of unfortunate, uh, unfortunate events that lie well beyond his control. Mr. President referred to these events as unexpected yet unavoidable, something the administration could not foresee and therefore outlined of their responsibility. He even apologized for the scandal of his own house. 
What, what Mr. President fails to understand, according to me, in these events, the White House, Ayotzinapa, Tlatraya, the prison break of the infamous Chapo, were neither random nor unpredictable. They were clear symptoms of a justice and human rights system that is quite simply broken. Endemic corruption, corruption mines the moral authority of the president, and there are tremendous shortcomings in terms of the operational, operational, operational capacity of a government that cannot even guard its own prisons. To a certain extent, the headline of The Economist is right. They don't get that they don't get it. If Mexico wants to recapture its moment, it must be aware that there are no shortcuts or an easy way out. As it happens during the 80s, after the debt crisis, the country undertook, undertook a long and daunting task of implementing institutional reforms and wove an impressive network of free trade agreements. However, it, neglect, it neglected reforms to the justice and security system, as well as the promotion of a culture of integrity. The future reached us. We need to reshape our institutional system with a new civic culture that tackles the impunity and refrain the bribes. It is not sustainable to build an open economy and an open government and keep the old practices, especially in the presidential house. It was probably naive, but many Mexicans believed that the president was beyond the traditional corruption, and in this concept, con context, it is not longer true. This is, according to me, an essential point to understand the depth of the crisis. The institution that embodies the values and the hopes failed dramatically. It is undeniable that we cannot continue to brew, this, to brew the same old recipe in all cauldrons. Neither we can keep brewing the same old recipe in fancy new cauldrons. The solution, change the recipe or risk having a sour brew. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello, I want to thank the University of California in San Diego and especially the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies as well as Melissa and Manuel Weinberg for this great invitation. I, I read an article by Oppenheimer saying that the Mexicans were the only ones that we weren't talking about the Mexican moment and that it could wither away. And in fact, that happened. But I don't think it happened because of we weren't talking about it, but for different reasons. President Peña reform were the, the response to domestic needs and global needs. Paradoxically, that same domestic and global context was the reason that the Mexican moment came to an end. Since the end of the 20th century, Mexico has experienced a weakening of the state. Unfortunately, organized crime and strong interest groups have occupied that vacuum of power. The government needed to take control of the state. While President Felipe Calderón's intention to retake the vacuum of power was through an open war declaration of war against the cartels, which proved unsuccessful, Peña Nieto's strategy is through reform. 
President Peña and his cabinet were very successful in creating a multi-party alliance to introduce reforms in education, energy, telecommunication, and fiscal matters. These are only the headlines of that would turn out to be a total of 11 reforms. In order to determine the success of the reforms, they had to implement in public policy, which is to say, it had to be put into practice, and that was the difficult part. So what happened? The Mexican pact did not include civil society. The reforms were an agenda imposed by the political elite. Therefore, it lacked the support of its citizens. Together with the economic reforms, there was an equality important need for reforms to foster transparency, to stop corruption, and to implement the rule of law and the administration of justice. The international context demanded reforms to take full advantage of globalization. If Mexico did not react and implemented the changes necessary in the modern economy, the international market would have had enforced penalties, like the case of Greece, ultimately debilitating an already weak state. What changed in the international context that affected the Mexican moment? The oil prices drop, China's economy slowed down, the uncertainty of the U.S. economy, specifically its interest rate policy, and in short, an international lack of economic growth. Another important factor that affected Mexican success in the implementation of the reforms was the fact that the Mexican political elite chose to ignore the global context and the latest analysis in globalization. Moises Naim says that all over the world, new actors are competing for the monopoly of power of the state. And in fact, all governments are feeling a sense of weakening. Jeremy Rifkin says that the power structure has changed from hierarchical to horizontal. The young millennials especially value the transparency of information. The superhighway of information makes it possible to expose doubtful dealings in seconds, thanks to the advance in social media. How the international contest affected the Mexican reform? When the reforms were going to be put into practice, civil society express their discontent through social media and internet. Politicians did not understand the existence of new actors that wanted to take advantage of the reforms. Politicians did not understand the power of unions and the rejection of the reforms. And politicians did not take into consideration entrenched interests that wanted to keep the status quo. But most importantly, they chose to ignore civil society, demands of accountability, and underestimated its power in modern society. Creating a more progressive tax system by not including transparency and efficiency in spending practice, society reacted negatively through the social media. There is 
where the two factors merge, the international and the domestic. The lack of understanding by politicians of the international context greatly affected the domestic status. They failed to realize that in today's world, the domestic issues and international issues are forever, forever intertwined. Then we have the data of the success. Commercial banks has increased, probably all the economists are going to talk more about uh, uh, this, but commercial banks have increased in 10%. There are cheaper cre credits for the population. All revenue dependence has diminished. Now there are f uh, 50 million people paying taxes. There has been an increase of 11 million people. The economy's growth has been 2.4% in this year. Unemployment, 4.3. One million and a half formal jobs have been created. There has been an increase in 1.3 percent in wages. Consumption has increased. Retail stores have experienced 3.7 growth. Commerce, 4.55. All of this despite the adverse international context. A special prosecutor was created. Uh, an office of a special prosecutor was created. In, in late 2014, given the demand of society expressed on the social networks, a national anti-corruption system was created, made up of several institutions and with civil society participation. It is not the solution, but at least it's a good start. The education reform, I believe, is the most important one because only with the diffusion of knowledge and the, poor, uh, the poorest group, groups of society can benefit from other reforms. According to Latin America, so at the same time that we have this very good data about the economy who no, that nobody can deny, according to Latino Barometro, Latin Americans think that the main problems afflicting countries is not insecurity on the economy, it is, or the economy, it is corruption. According to Transparency Mexicano Eduardo Bojorquez in Mexico, 99% of the population believes that political parties are corrupt. 56% think that when laws are unjust, they should not be obeyed. This feeling of dissatisfaction exists worldwide. In the United States, only 33% have a great deal or some trust in the president. Only 32% support the Supreme Court. And only 8% in Congress. And 69% in Brazilian of Brazilians classify President Rousseff's administration as bad or very bad. With today's interconnected world, leaders and institutions are held to a higher standard. To recover the necessary le legitimacy for these reforms and not only recapture the Mexican moment, but really achieve the necessary transformation of Mexico, I think that the reforms have to be implemented, taking into consideration the perspective of the least advantage of society in order to diminish the great social inequalities in Mexico. Only if the costs and benefits of the reforms are distributed in an equitable way, implementing domestic justice, the reforms would have proven successful. Going further, 
it is of the most importance that Mexico also demands international justice. Globalization has concentrated the accumulation of wealth. Therefore, there has to be a moral responsibility by advanced countries not to take advantage of emerging countries, free trade policies. Otherwise, many of Mexico's advances would benefit not the Mexican people, but Stiglitz 1% or Piketty 0.01% of the global population. Therefore, for the reforms to surpass the Mexican moment and arrive to the most needed transformation of Mexico, politicians have to act with social responsibility, while civil society has to understand that it is not only their right, but their obligation to oversee the government performance, as well as introducing the debate of justice, not only at the national level, but at the international level, to define the direction of the global growth. Thank you very much. Gracias. Um, good morning to all. I'm honored to be here as a panelist. Thank you for the University of California at San Diego for hosting this great event. Um, first of all, I want to first talk about the port industry and how this port industry in Mexico might transform the country as an exporting powerhouse. But first, let me start with telling you a little bit about where I come from. So Carex is one of the... It's, among the world's largest privately held terminal operators. We currently have over 220 locations worldwide in nine different countries, uh, including Mexico, Panama, Chile, and the US. The 13.5 million TUs that you see there basically rank us at the 12th largest terminal operator in the world by TU base. Now, let me show you what we do in Mexico. So in Mexico, we have operations in Manzanillo, which is the fourth largest term terminal in Latin America, Lázaro Cárdenas, Veracruz, Progreso, Cozumel, and as the only private port authority in the country, which is in Veracruz. And just to tell you a little bit of how excited the company is for the next coming years, uh, we're going to invest $675 million in, the, in, different, in our different operations, and that's $175 million more than we have invested in the past 18 years. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the market. So Mexico has 117 ports and terminals. And according to the World Economic Forum, we're ranked 62nd in the world in terms of infrastructure. The, the highest ranking uh, Latin America country is Panama, and is ranked at number 37. Brazil, in contrast, which is the largest economy in Latin America, is ranked at number 70. Uh, Hong Kong is the number one, and the U.S. ranks at number 14. The port sea cargo accounts for 80% of the world commerce. And in Mexico, the foreign trade is two-thirds of its GDP. In infrastructure, the infrastructure that you see here, it has been in place for more than 75 years. But important projects are coming along that will basically duplicate the capacity that we have in Mexico. Projects such as new uh, port in Veracruz, uh, Manzanillo, Lázaro Cárdenas, and Tuxpan. 
And throughout all of these 117 ports, Mexico exported and imported 286 million tons. That's an increase of 2.3% over last year. The Mexico container industry in specific is dominated by four major ports that account for 95% of the whole market. In the Pacific side, we have Manzanillo and Lazaro Cárdenas, which its main trading partners are the west coast of the U.S. and Asia, and that accounts for 68% of the total trade. And for the Gulf, with Veracruz and Altamira, as only 32%, and the major partners are the U.S. and the west coast of the U.S. And just to give you some examples of what we export to these ports is we're the number one exporter of avocados, electronics, flat screens, the number two exporter of tomatoes, the number five exporter of computers, and we're the leading exporter in Latin America of electronics and appliances. Well, just to give you a little bit more of a picture, um, in 1994, the privatization happened, and all the major players, or most of the major players, came into Mexico. And two of the biggest companies, Maersk or APMT and Hutchinson, which respectively are the second and third largest terminal operators, have invested in Mexico. And just so you can see the growth, is like in 1994, like for example, in 1994 to 2014, in Manzanillo has grown 38 times what it was, and Veracruz has grown three times, Lazaro Cárdenas has grown 110 times, and Altamira has grown eight times. Mexico is the eighth largest producer of automobiles and the fourth largest exporter of them and after Germany, Japan, and Korea. The domestic car sales in Mexico are 1.3 million cars, but if you compare Mexico to similar GDP countries, that demand should double in the next couple of years. Just to give you a comparison, here in the US, they sell 16.5 million cars every year. The main exports are from Mex the main exports are the NAFTA region with 80%, Asia with 5%, Europe with 4%, and Latin, Latin America with 1%. And the import side is Asia with 38%, NAFTA with 28%, Europe with 19%, and Latin America with 15%. And just to have a better picture, is every, for every 10 cars sold in the US, one is made in Mexico. But what is more exciting is what's gonna come. So basically, analysts, for the next three, three years, they predict that Mexico will increase its capacity by more than 50%. That means that they're going to produce 1.8 million, million cars more. And as you can see, Mexico's volume growth has doubled from the previous decade. Also, but also as you can see, is auto, car manufacturers and suppliers have earmarked around $20 billion dollars for investment into Mexico. And in those seven new plants, the ones in red, they're all gonna create 38,000 new jobs in the next couple of years. And I think this graph is very impressive because here we can see that Mexico is second to China in new investment into the auto manufacturing. But if you actually look at the growth year over year, Mexico is th has three times the growth that China did. Now. Although we hear all of this bad press and bad reviews about Mexico, but in fact, the tourism in the cruise industry has been booming. 
And if you, if you actually see, Cozumel is 60% of the cruise market in Mexico, but it's the world largest destination, cruise destination in the world. And it receives more than 3 million passengers a year. So now, in my, kind of what makes Mexico so exciting for everybody? And I think a, a part of it is that Mexico is one of the countries with most free trade agreements. It has, over, it has free trade agreements with 45 different countries, and it's the largest export country in Latin America with 35% of the market. And now, I kind of to finish this is, and kind of to put a, a perspective in what Chris said, that Mexico maybe has two sides of it, is I, I believe that Mexico is in a unique position to become a a exporting powerhouse, um, major industries such as aerospace, electronics, and transportation, among others, are setting shop in Mexico. And with the new reforms, we should be having, like Pat said, a better education and a more qualified labor and access to, it, to our immense natural gas reserves, a lower energy cost, and more foreign direct investment. And to achieve all of this, we, we need the actual administration and ongoing administration to keep, infra, to keep supporting first world infrastructure to keep Mexico moving forward. Thank you. Thanks very much, Pablo. Last but certainly not least, Carlos Capistran. So it's great to be back here in San Diego. It's hard for me to be here, you know, because I'm not wearing my flip-flops. So <laughs> it's really strange. <laughs> but, uh, well, thank you very much to UCSD for having me here back and to the center. I think they, they've been doing a great job at U.S.-Mexico's uh, relations. So let, let me talk about the, the, the macro. And the macro in Mexico is one of the best stories that Mexico has. Yes, people say there are two Mexicos. There's actually many Mexicos, you know. But, but, the, but the macro story is just amazing. So I want to tell you a little bit about that, that, that macro story. So, so we're here to talk about Mexico's moment, if it continues or not. So I say, yes, it continues, but I think it's, uh, you have to look at it in relative terms. So just let me give you these this, this numbers, for instance. Mexico... Consensus thinks that Mexico is going to grow about 2.5% this year and a little bit less than 3% next year, okay? So let's put it at between 2 and 3% uh, roughly the following quarters, okay? So at the beginning of the administration, with all the reforms, uh, the, the president and everybody in the government was uh, talking about 5% growth in Mexico. So clearly, people are disappointed. This is half of that. What happened? Because the reforms were passed. So what happened? Where is all the growth, Okay. So, so that's, a, that's a bad part of the story. But then let me tell you something else. You know, Brazil, what's, what's going to be growth in Brazil this year? It's going to be 3%. Minus 3%. What's going to be next year? Minus 3%, according to our economies there. Uh, minus 2%, according to, to, to consensus. You know that in our forecast, so I'm uh, with Bank of America, in our forecast for the region, for the Latin American region, you know, with what my forecast for Mexico, which is 2.2% for this year, Mexico is going to be the country that we cover in Latin America that is with the fastest growth. Not Chile, maybe Peru, definitely not Venezuela, not Argentina, and of course not Brazil. So in relative terms, 
2% this year, or a little bit more than 2% this year, a little bit close to 3% next year, maybe, or between 2 and 3%, you know, that's great. That's a 5%. It's just that the world changed. Oil prices halved. You know, China is, was growing at 10%, and now it's growing at less than 7%, you know? So, so it, it's, it's difficult. So, but, the, but the thing is that Mexico has been pretty resilient to what's going on in emerging markets. We are entering what may be called a crisis in emerging markets right now, and Mexico is doing fine. At this stage of the game, in previous emerging market crisis, Mexico would already be with you know, negative growth, high inflation, whatnot. You know what is inflation in Mexico now? Inflation in Mexico is 2.5%, the lowest inflation ever. So everybody's talking in Mexico, if you go to Mexico and you talk about the economy, everybody's talking that Mexico, the, the peso is at the weakest level ever. You know what? But yes, that's true. But also inflation is at the lowest level ever. So how come we have a very weak exchange rate, but we don't have inflation? Well, because Mexicans have been fixing the macroeconomy for many, many years, for more than 20 years. And, and it seems that we have been successful at doing it. So let me now just show you a couple of, some charts. So this is Mexico, so that's GDP, and that's retail sales. Mexico is the orange one, and the blue one is the rest of Latin America. So right now, Mexico is doing much better in economic terms than the rest of Latin America. Why? So for me, this is like the X-ray of Latin America. So this is at the deep core of what, why Mexico is different than Latin America. First, because it's North America. Mexico is North America. It's not Latin America. Well, it is, but it's also North America. So look at this. So this is exports as a percentage of GDP. Mexico is a very open economy. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the economy that is uh, more open than the rest of Latin America. Mexico exports 30% of the GDP. Brazil is a closed economy. It only exports 10% of the GDP. So that's the first difference. Then another difference is look at the composition of exports. So Venezuela only exports oil. The rest of the uh, Latin American countries, they export commodities. Mexico is the only one that, as Pablo was telling us, we export manufacturers. We produce cars. We, we export cars. We export flat TVs. We export... Uh, cell phones, right? And just a little bit of a commodity, which is oil. But most of our exports is manufacturing exports. And then the destination of the exports is also quite different. You see, most of Latin America and South America, let's put it that way, exports to China. Look at Chile, look at Brazil, look at Colombia, right? Whereas Mexico, of course, we export to the U.S. Now, one way to put what's going on in the world right now is that we're seeing a transformation between a robust U.S. economy that is growing nicely and a deceleration of growth in China. If you have this composition, who's going to do better in the following years? Mexico or South America? In a way, the, the tough years are over for Mexico because with the recession in the U.S., those were very difficult years for Mexico if you have this structure. Now, if you are exporting manufacturers and you're exporting manufacturers to the U.S., you're in great shape, okay? Now, you, uh, Pablo, you were also saying about all these, uh, uh, how Mexico is receiving now, in terms of growth, more investment for manufacturers than China. Well, some of you may have seen this chart. This is, do uh, this is wages in dollars in China and in Mexico. In Mexico, right now, wages are much lower than in China in dollar terms. 
This is good in terms of competitiveness because this has allowed Mexico to receive all this investment and every single major auto producer in the world is building a plant in Mexico or building another plant in Mexico. This is part of the reason. But it's not only against China. If you look at the other chart in terms of competitiveness of what we call the unit labor cost, you're going to see that Mexico has been pretty successful as, 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 uh, by, re by having unit labor costs that have remained low for many, many years, just compared to other countries that compete with Mexico for the U.S. market, such as Taiwan or Korea or Poland. I just put Brazil there just to show you, the, again, the big difference that we have in Mexico versus South America. So what is behind this flat unit labor cost? What is behind this competitiveness? So there, there's many things. One is, you may have heard that productivity in Mexico is low and that total factor productivity is actually negative. Well, that, sadly, that is true. But when you just look at productivity in the manufacturing sector, that is not true. There is a lot of uh, uh, manufacturing companies in Mexico where productivity has been increasing a lot. And there are many, uh, many manufacturing uh, firms in Mexico that have productivity that is above uh, the median productivity of U.S. firms, for instance. Uh, another great advantage of Mexico is the demographics. We still have 15 or 20 years, maybe, of very good demographics. Okay? Now, there are many stories that we can, we can say about this, and, but maybe we can discuss that later. But Mexico still has very good demographics. And, of course, the macro. And, the, and in the macro, what we have is the depreciation of the peso, and many of you may think that this is not a good thing. So if your currency is uh, weakening, that, that, that shouldn't be good, except if you're an exporter. If you're an exporter, that's actually a good thing. Because when you're facing, so what happens if you have a business and you're facing less demand? Well, you lower your price. So that's, what, that's exactly what Mexico is doing. There is less demand coming from the US, less demand coming from other countries. And what Mexico is doing is lowering the price of the things that it exports. That's a good thing. That's not a good thing if that goes to inflation. Because if it goes to inflation, then the central bank has to fight it. And it, has, it needs to increase rates in order to fight that. Therefore, it amplifies external shock. That's not what is going on in Mexico. In Mexico, inflation is right now at the lowest level ever. And therefore, the central bank has remained with very low interest rates. And it's going to continue to be like that. Maybe it's going to accompany a move with the Fed when the Fed hikes rates. But so far, it's a 3% rate in, in Mexico. And this, uh, what we have here is what we economists call the real exchange rate, which is exchange rate once you take into account inflation. Okay? And for me, this chart is like the history of Latin America in just one chart. Okay? So whenever the, this real exchange rate goes up, is that the, it's, 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 it's weakening. And whenever it goes down, it's appreciating, right? So you see uh, Argentina. Look at these big swings in the real exchange rate. Look at Brazil. Brazil here, it's very strong, real, and now it's weakening a lot. But if you look at Mexico, Mexico is almost like a flat rate. Okay? That's good because that brings you a lot of stability. So in Mexico, the currency is not really, really, never really strong. We never had a super peso like there was a super real some years ago. But then we never have a very, very weak uh, uh, currency. It's just fine. It helps you with your manufacturers. Now, of course, there are some problems with this model. Uh, I mentioned one of, the key one of the key features of the model is that we have low wages in Mexico. Well, there is a dark side to these low wages, right? The problem is they are very low. 
the other problem is there has been an increase in income inequality in terms of wages, okay? So from an economic perspective, why do we have so, uh, so many social problems in Mexico? Part of this is because of this. So we haven't been able in Mexico to take all the success of the manufacturing industry and to spread it to other parts of the country through wages or through other, uh, through other programs. So, of course, there are challenges that remain. Now, the main challenge on the macro side is, so we manage now in Mexico to have a stable economy. Okay, Inflation is low and, and, and so on and so forth. The problem is we are an emerging market and we only grow around 2% or between 2 and 3%. That's too low for an emerging market, okay? So what's the problem? What should we do to grow more? That, that's the big challenge. And again, as, 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 as you may have heard, the big problem is what we call total fractal productivity. The truth is that other than the manufacturing industry, the rest of the industries in Mexico, services and all that, probably because of all the informality that we have, its productivity is very low. So the real challenge is how to increase productivity in Mexico. And the problem is not the macroeconomics. The problem is the micro. And of course, we're going to talk later today a lot about the problems with the rule of law and all the problems with corruption and all that, that of course is preventing the country to increase its productivity. But there are other aspects that need to be solved. So for instance, health, education, there are many challenges that remain. Well, one of the things that I did like about this administration is that they had the diagnosis right. So the Minister of Finance, right when he started, he, since the beginning, started talking about productivity. And he said, the problem with Mexico is productivity. And he said, what we need to do is reforms to increase productivity. And you know what? They did those reforms. And everybody was expecting growth, and we're not having that growth except in relative terms. But you know something that I learned when going through all this reform process? Is that the very first, things, very first thing that you get when you do a lot of reforms is a big uncertainty shock. Think about this. There, there are more than 10 changes to the Constitution. There are more than 10 new institutions in Mexico. There are thousands of new rules uh, that have been written in Mexico. Okay? So... The problem is when you change all the rules of the game at the same time, you create a big uncertainty shock. So partly what, so, so you, don't get, you don't get growth immediately. First, you need people to learn the new rules of the game. The tax system was changed. The labor rules were changed. Political system changed. The way we, uh, the antitrust laws were changed. Everything was changed. So right now, when you look at investment in Mexico, it's starting to pick up. Uh, and this is exactly what happened when you have an uncertainty shock. First, you have the shock, so there is less investment. But then, while people, when people learn the new rules of the game, then they start investing more. The other thing that happened is that Mexico opened new investment opportunities. So think about the energy sector. It was closed for many, many years. Now, suddenly, they say, we're going to change the constitution. We're going to open that sector. So you know what happened with a lot of these big industrial groups that we have in Mexico? They stop investing in some other things and wait for the new rules, and now they are investing in the energy sector. But that's a natural reaction, right? So when you're in the middle of it, actually growth uh, slows down. But now, you know, little by little, we're having a, a more and more investment, and I think that's, that's a good thing. So let me just stop there by saying that, yes, I think Mexico's moment continues. And Chris just pointed to uh, an important thing to me. 
most of these things that we talk about right now have been built over 20 years in Mexico. So low, infla uh, low inflation. The central bank was made independent in 93. Uh, very good public, uh, public, uh, uh, public uh, debt to GDP radio ratio is extremely low in Mexico. That also was solved in the 90s, for instance. So it's not a Mexican moment in the last 10 years, but it's a lot of that has been built through many, many years in Mexico, but it's, 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 it's really there. You can see it on the, from the macro side. Thank you. We will now begin our Q&A session. Uh, please focus your, uh, limit your remarks and focus on concise questions. There will be microphones that are being distributed. Speak directly into the mic. Thank you. So I, th I think what we're going to do is actually take a, have a few minutes of discussion here on the stage, and then we'll go. But so definitely be formulating your questions, because we will have plenty of time for interaction and questions with the audience as well. Great. So thanks so much, Carlos. And maybe I can actually build on what you were just talking about to start our, our conversation here on stage. Uh, and, and maybe the, the way to frame a question around it would be, is it an uncertainty shock, or, or was there a case of expectations getting fanned maybe higher than it was possible to achieve? And maybe in different sectors, these are playing out in different ways. But I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting thinking about all of the presentations here is, you know, the, the, the things I talked about, that, the Aztec Tiger, the Saving Mexico, uh, the, and of course the Mexican Moment headlines, these are all headlines from the international press, uh, not in all cases, but often by the financial press. So certainly a piece of the Mexico moment had to do with expectations of investors in the international, especially economic community, being fanned very high. So how do we make sense of, of this you know, uncertainty shock at the same one time, uh, but at the other time, the, the mix between expectations and what was really achievable at the beginning of a presidency? Uh, does, I'll throw it out there for anyone here, parent stage, actually. I, I can start to do one no, well, I think we had already had several Mexican moments in that sense. We had the, the Mexican miracle uh, that Hansen talked about it in, in the 70s, and, and then the Salinas moment that was also very important, uh, and now this moment. And I think through all these years, they have been making changes. So it's, it's, it's little by little. So what we really want is not this Mexican moment in the press, but the transformation, the real transformations. And I think that, that takes a lot of time when you change institutions and when you change values. That's very important. So I think that's what we have to have in mind to really, really, once that these reforms were done, really make the transformation and Mexico, uh, of Mexico so that we are not in the news one day, but we are, we, everybody knows that we have changed as a whole. Mm -hmm. Did you want to jump yeah, uh, so, so first, yes, there's a little bit of, uh, of, uh, of an issue with expectations, but you know what? If you are going to change the constitution of a country and if you're going to change it several times, you really need to set the expectations high. So, so you really need to do that. As a politician, you really, I mean, you're not going to uh, make people change the constitution if you don't put expectations here. Mm -hmm. So th that's not a problem. That, 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 that's what you need to do. The problem is what follows. And again, as, as an economist, what I learned is, you know, there's the, the labor reform. That was the first one, actually, with, with, with Calderon, so with President Calderon. So 
you know, we are, are looking at, you know, the labor market is going to be less rigid, so it's going to be more flexible, so this is going to increase productivity and Mexico's economy is going to grow because of this. Yes, except that in the first two years, everybody's so busy learning the new rules of the games and exactly I have to change all my contracts and all my contractors and learning the new things that actually nothing happens. It's not more flexible immediately. First, it's more rigid. But it's the same with education. So here we're all expecting, you know, education is going to change because now we're finally going to evaluate our teachers. Yes, it takes more than a year to finally proceed with all the evaluation to the teachers and start putting some of them in jail and doing all these things. So, <laughs> you know, it's going to take time. So, so, so uh, this is what I learned. The very, first, the very first thing that you get when you do all of these changes is that, and this is precisely why, this, this, this political, this big book in political science, right, from El Principe, from Machiavelli, right? There, there is actually a, a sentence there that says that when he's recommending to the prince, he says, if you're going to do reforms, never do many reforms at the same time, because that's crazy. But in part, you shouldn't do all the reforms at the same time, because you're going to be picking fights with everybody. And part of the problem with this administration is that they pick a fight with the teachers' union. They pick a fight with the big telecommunications guy. Yeah, they pick a fight with the with with the El Chapo. They pick a fight. They pick a fight with everybody, you know. So they, they increase taxes to rich people. So there you go. So they pick a fight with everybody. No wonder they are like you know <laughs> on the floor, you know. With all, but but that is what needed to be done. So maybe there's a better way to do all of these things. But one of the good things is that many things were done. The constitution was changed, and now we're going through this messy process of implementing everything. But I, I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm very constructive about that process. And so, I mean, if you, you say what you have to do at the beginning of an administration, if you want to get the political will to make reforms like this, yeah. is yeah. raise expectations. That makes perfect sense to me. But of course, the downside of that might be that if you end up in this moment of uncertainty in this time period of implementation, that you end up with approval ratings like those that, that Leonardo showed us. How, how is it that I mean, it, would it even, is it possible for economic performance to change those approval ratings for the president right now? I mean, we have, talking about your, your opera, we have a long third act ahead of us, right? We still have three years to go in this administration. You know, is there something in terms of economic performance that could recover, that could help a, give the president a recovery in those approval ratings? Or what is it that he needs to be able to achieve that? It's a long act. In fact, I would like to make, if you allow me, a couple of comments, Please. quick comments about Carlos' presentation, which was outstanding. I think the macroeconomy narrative is no longer useful. It was very useful at the beginning of this century. Nowadays, we take that for granted. And we say, well, okay, the inflation is low. Very well, what, what, what is next? Second point, I don't think this narrative, that comparison narrative, that we are better than the neighbors is useful, neither. I mean, we say, well, the Brazilians are not doing all right. It's bad for them. It's a pity, but we are having our own problems. So I think those um, narratives are no longer useful in the national discussion. I think you are right. You are absolutely right. But we have to, 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 to recreate the narrative. About the, the, the approval rate, the rate of approval of the president, I think that, uh, as Pasconsuelo said, we have had uh, several Mexican moments during these 25 years. The first, the, the first point was the free trade agreement with the states and Canada. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you uh, look what happened in these 25 years, Mexico is doing pretty well in the economic field. Some sectors like uh, automotrices, etc., are doing very well. 
But we are facing the same old problems in the administration. I mean, the you just can't have, you just can't accomplish a modernization, a full modernization, if you don't take care of your own administration. We are facing exactly the same old problems with the rule of law. I mean, we have 25 years ago the, the scandal of Gutierrez Rebollo. Now we are facing El Chapo Guzmán, which I mean creates. Um, a lack of confidence with our neighbors, with, with the states. So we have to face, we, we have to really face that our problem is that we can't not longer uh, take, I mean, we, we must take care of the, the institutional transformation. We, we need a real uh, agreement in order to transform the country in that way. Otherwise, it's going to be a, a mess. I agree with my friend Luis Rubio. We need nowadays a kind of free trade agreement or a law enforcement agreement with the states and our neighbors. We have to, to learn from that experience that the integrations means not only change your institution, build a new bank, etc., but you have to, to change your practices, your civic culture. So I, I think we have to, to move in that. We have to, to do that exercise in order to learn from the past mm -hmm. and probably build this kind of agreement, free trade agreement in the rule of law. Pascal, you mentioned in your presentation the anti-corruption reform that's happened recently. Now, that was after, you know, it was 2013 when we had all of these economic reforms, mm -hmm. and then it was following some of the, the tragedies and scandals that unfolded in 2014 mm -hmm. that we have the anti-corruption reform being designed and, and now moving towards a process of implementation. Mm -hmm. Was that the missing reform? Uh, is that the, 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 the mega agreement that will solve the, the major problem remaining that was untackled before, or what is that? I think it is very important, the transparency, all these, all these factors that were not included by the civil, that were asked, are asked by the civil society, because if you are going to move the society, if you are going to have more resources, you really want to know what is going on with, with your money. So the, all this, uh, the transparency law of uh, President Fox, I think was very, very important, was a, a, a good start. And, and now uh, Peña's presidency was really very important that he started to listen and he ha they have to listen more to the civil society because they, ha there has to be a, a participation of civil society really to believe in these institutions. They, you cannot keep building these institutions or these laws out there with no civil society participation. This is part of a globalization. Nowadays, all the millennium guys want transparency. Everybody is demanding all these new values. And I think it's important that they listen to this idea, the implementation of, of law and, and of justice, not just to apply the law, but to give justice to the daily lives of citizens in Mexico. Mm -hmm. and Pablo and, and maybe Carlos as well, I mean, you are very in touch with the investor community, the business community. To what extent, I mean, and, and we hear a business community, investor community that's still excited about Mexico, I should say, given your, your presentations. To what extent is there concern among those communities about these issues of the rule of law and transparency? I mean, to what extent are these real stumbling blocks for future investments in Mexico? I think in, well, in our experience, it has been very tough to deal with them. Uh, especially 
I mean, being a U.S. company that has all these uh, Foreign Corruption Practice Act and all that, to move through all of this, it's just hard work and being persistent and trying to make politicians understand that there's a better way and a larger way to build things and make Mexico better. So it's, it's, I say it's extremely difficult for a lot of the international because they don't understand how the Mexico, how like the politics and how the the business work, and but I think it also is kind of part from this our society that we make it so it's that way. So we also need to change the Mexican society um, to make it easier for more foreigners to come in and say, okay, I'm going to build this either port, airport, uh, plant, or whatever it is, and. And it's more transparent. It's easier to basically build. Mm-hmm. Um, and what would your, be your diagnostic? I mean, what is investor sentiment right now about Mexico? What are you, what are you hearing? Are you, I mean, where, you know, we've, we've had this roller coaster of how the press uh, has treated Mexico, of the different stories coming out. Some things, I mean, obviously based on facts on the ground. But where, you know, as they're reading uh, these different narratives about Mexico, where do you see the, the investor community and business community today? I think all, most of them are, uh, they're precautious uh, to say it. I mean, it, it's a really attractive market, but there's, there are challenges. And it's, we're so linked to the U.S. that if the U.S. kind of sneezes, we get a cold. And so they have to be, uh, I think they're very precautious, but they're excited of the future that Mexico holds. Mm-hmm. But they have to be, they, they're really careful about it. But thanks. Yeah, Carlos, do you want to? Yeah, well, yeah, no. Investors still like Mexico, so so they like it. So so, and I have to say this. I mean, the, the, the expression that a lot of investors use is in Latam. The only place to hide is in Mexico. So this tells you it's not so much because Mexico is doing great. It's just because the South America is doing so bad right now. But they, let me go back to to this point that, that Leonardo was making. For them, relative is important. When you have a lot of money, you're a hedge fund, and you're looking where to place your money, you're going to look at relative, in relative terms and where to put your money. It's not about absolute terms, because there are, there are shocks that affect everybody. And as you mentioned, several shocks. China's slowing down, oil prices are down. So who's going to fare better than the rest? And that's where I want to put my money. So relative terms are, are very important. And the other thing is, Leonardo, you mentioned, you know, but yes, yes, I know the macro is fine. I know, you know inflation is, is low. So, so and, you know, we have to take that for granted. And really, that's great. Yeah. We finally achieved that. Yeah. We finally did it, mm-hmm. you know. We can take that for granted. Mm-hmm. Inflation is fine. We are growing. This is not negative growth, you know. That's great. We're finally there. Because for many, many years, we were not there. And all these comparisons are, are, are drawing to other countries in South America is because right now, there is a lot of countries that are suffering a lot. And as I mentioned, at this stage of the game, halftime maybe through all these what's going on in the emerging markets right now, Mexico would be suffering again. And we are not. Well, it's not stellar, but we're doing great. And the last thing I have to say about that is, yes, there are many challenges that remain in Mexico. The rule of law, of course, that the, that's, that's the missing reform. And then all the rampant corruption and all that. Sure, I agree. But you know, it's just like, like in life. Where do you get the strength to fight the things that you need, the, the things that you need to do? Mm. You find the strength in the things that you're doing right in, in, in your success. 
So we have to keep saying all that Mexico has been doing right. So let's not throw this low inflation thing like it is nothing. Let's say, look, we are able to do things. You know, we can control inflation. Inflation is low. Now let's do the same with corruption. That's fine. But, but we really need to remember these things. I think this is very important. And just to add a little bit about that, I mean, as you can see, manufacturers are actually investing in Mexico. So it is possible and it's exciting to be in Mexico right now. Yeah, thank you. So, Leonardo, let's go, go back to, I mean, so there are these different interpretations of what maybe the Mexican moment was in the first place. I mean, there's this interpretation that maybe the Mexican moment has been a slow-growing improvement of the Mexican economy that wasn't such a spike uh, at the beginning of the administration. But there's also the, the opera that you presented us that really does have its, its ups and downs uh, in a very dramatic fashion. I mean, how, at, at this point in the conversation, would you revisit that, that description of the Mexican moment popping up out of nowhere at the beginning of the, the Peña Nieto administration? Or should we, should we reconceptualize it as something that, that's not built up overnight and it's not so much about press, but is really something that has strong fundamentals? Yeah, I would say the, the, the slogan a couple of years ago was it's the economics, it's stupid. Now the, the, the slogan will be it's the rule of law, stupid. That, that's the key point in order to, yeah. to change the, the, the Mexican situation. I, I would like to, to effectively say that my country is missing a point. I mean, we are missing that if we don't change our educational system, by the way, Claudia X. Gonzalez is here, is making a terrific job in order to point the, 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 the weak points of our educational system and the rule of law and the functioning of the, the administration. Uh, our administration is so weak that the mail doesn't work, the airports doesn't work, and the infrastructure, infrastructure is terrible. So, so if we don't face that, if we don't change that image, we will never um, get this momentum in order to, 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 to convey this message that Mexico is changing. And by the way, if you allow me, I would like to say that the image that Mexico is sending, look at the picture, look at the screen, it's, it's very traditional. It's, it's a little bit, I mean, it's awkward because we are trying to convey the image of a new country, a vibrant country, and this is beautiful. Uh, you must agree with me, but it's so traditional. No? It's so old in a certain way. It's a very Mexican curiosity. So my, my, my point is that we have, if we want to convey another message, if we want to convey that Mexico is changing and the Mexican moment can be recaptured, we have to think about this. I mean, yeah. reputation is not just about um, institution. It's also about uh, media, the way you send it, the iconic image you are sending to the world. So we should have a bunch of pictures of uh, trucks and factories? Is that the... Sure. We'll have to think about it. Okay. Pazpensuelo, <laughs> you uh, work at the Center for North American Studies, uh, CISAN, at the, at the UNAM to do the, uh, the magazine on, on the relations in the North American space. Uh, you see this not only from a Mexican perspective, but from a regional perspective and from an international perspective. How is it that this roller coaster of a narrative has impacted Mexico's international relations, its, its relationship with the United States? I mean, certainly I, from, from Washington, have seen things in recent weeks, like the the withholding of certain Merida Initiative funds to Mexico as a result of human rights concerns. Uh, certainly the, the simple, the, the escape of Chapo Guzman 
uh, caused some challenges in the relationship for you know, the immense investment that the United States had put into getting him in jail in the first place, along with Mexico, of course, but, but certainly the U.S. had invested quite a lot in that. How do you see this, this you know, changing of narratives, the, the scandals and tragedies that have unfolded impacting Mexico's position in the world and vis-a-vis the United States? Well, I think that uh, we have to change not only the narrative, but to change the facts. So uh, I really think that we have to understand all these reforms, as I was saying, in terms of where is this money or these resources are going in Mexico? What is going to really happen in Mexico and and the transformation of the whole society? And the relation with the United States is very complex. As you know, with globalization, our two economies, the process of production, everything is intermingled. To a, to a level that is very difficult really to separate the, the, the two countries totally. So there are uh, deeper relations go, that go practically without problem every day and uh, there is no problem. And at the same time, you have these, these moments where the narrative changes and everything seems to stop. But fortunately, I think the, the society has the links, the necessary links to, to, to change the narrative little by little, but it takes the work, as we were saying, not only of the government, because we corruption is not only in government, it's in the private sector, it's in, in civil society that people believe that they don't, don't have to do any changes and they can uh, do whatever thing in corruption, but the government cannot. So the whole society has to change. Therefore, the United States has a, a different view, and we ha- can take the opportunity of, of, of all these many, many things that we have in common that we can both gain. Maybe United States more because it's more powerful, but we also have to, to, to gain. That's what I was talking about, justice. We have to, to look at justice not only in Mexico for a better distribution of income, but of justice in the relation between Mexico and United States, where we can both win of these opportunities. Yeah, and I have to say, I mean, I think that one of the interesting things is that if you look at the tone of U.S.-Mexico relations, it has not been on, actually, this roller coaster ride. Despite the fact that the, the, you know, the case of Ayotzinapa and human rights issues, I mean, they enter the relationship. There's no doubt that those enter the relationship as challenges. But the, the complexity and depth of the relationship has actually allowed it to have its own trajectory that's, that's stronger than uh, the, the sort of the, the narrative swings over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we're going to turn to the audience uh, in just one second, for, but I just want to ask one last question of, of the whole panel. You know, if you, if there was, and we, we've heard bits of this along the way, but if there was one thing, if you could offer one piece of advice to, to the government or, or perhaps even to society in Mexico of how is it that you can recover the Mexico moment, that's what the panel is all about, what would be that, that one piece of advice that, that you would offer? Yeah, well, let's, let's do the reforms on, to, to improve the rule of law. So, so the, the big yeah. thing, so... So look at it. From a macro perspective, from an economic perspective, it's all about doing contracts. So, so, so a society works, the economy works, because you go and do a contract, and then... But if you cannot enforce the contract, then you have a big problem. So deep down at the very bottom of what is to have a capitalist economy is that you are able to sign contracts and you're able to enforce those contracts. And that's exactly what we don't have in Mexico. So the missing big reform 
is how, uh, how are we going to be able to enforce our contracts with the, the, the implicit contracts, the explicit contracts with everybody, you know? And, and, and if you're able to do that, then you're going to have a society that by itself is going to, 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 to improve, you know? So it's the rule of law, and I would say specifically the part that has to do with enforcement of contracts. I think that's very important. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, I agree with him, but uh, I would say that uh, to try to, to win moral authority. If you want to change the heart, you want to change the soul, you want to change this national dismay, try to prove, I mean, Mr. President, that you can win political authority in order to change. Now, he has a lot of opportunities. Now he can change, for instance, the Sistema de Pensiones con el Sindicato Petrolero. He has a terrific opportunity in order to show us, to, to the citizens, that he's willing to change the country. Uh, by the way, he I mean, with his scandal, with his home, his house scandal, the Casablanca, he has to prove that he's, uh, he, he will change the country, mm -hmm. not only apologizing. You can say, I'm sorry, but you should be sorry. You're really sorry, not just say, I'm sorry. Are you sorry, sorry, or you are just sorry? So, so <laughs> he has to win moral authority. That's yeah. my piece of analysis. And I think you mentioned before the, the, the argument of Luis Rubio. I think this is very much what it is, is that if you, as a president, want to create a nation where there's the rule of law, the first thing you have to do is put yourself below the rule of law. It's taking that, that role of leadership to show that to the public and win that moral authority. Absolutely. Uh, well, federalism in the United States has worked very well. The check and balances in the whole society have worked very well. In the case of Mexico, unfortunately, the, the federalism was uh, worked for the contrary. I mean, like, there are some uh, application of law in the, in, in the city, in the center, that, that works very well and have contracts with very important companies and, and goes without problems sometimes. But at the local level, that's the one that is going to be. So we have a paradox, a paradox because on the one hand, the center wants to give autonomy. That's the idea. That's the idea that the, that the states can be more autonomous. But at the same time, it is at this level that, that the laws, that the impunity of law is, is the worst. Mm -hmm. So I think we, we have to do a great task, the society and also the, the government working together so the check and balances, the obligations of the citizens to check at the local with the municipal level mm -hmm. so that really can have an effect in, in the whole country. Yeah, so that the, that the rule of law imposed at the local level is not done through control at the central level, no. federal taking over, but rather comes from actually within the local institutions and those subnational governments. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you. And I think Pablo? for me, the most important part is education. I think it's not only school, which is a great part, is a big part, but also kind of parents teaching their kids to be, behave, to n not throw trash, not to drive, um, to, to learn to love the country, which is a great country, and um, education making basically more people and more educated with a better system. Because I think education will help 
with a lot of the problems that we see here. Mm-hmm. And there's no doubt that that's a, that's a long-term issue, yeah. right? To talk about the, the challenges of implementation and when people will feel the impacts of reforms that are taking place today. Uh, education is probably the one that takes the longest because yeah. you have to wait for all of those children uh, to... First, you have to change the system, and then you have to have those children move through the system yeah. and come out as the, the types of uh, adults and contributors to the economy and society that we're yeah. looking to do. Let's open it up to questions from the audience at this point. If you could please, uh, when you get the microphone, I think we'll have a microphone going around. If you could identify yourself and keep your question brief so that we can hear the responses from the panel. Let's take a question right here in the middle to start. Well, thank you. My name is Amando Gaspar, and I used to teach here at the University of California in San Diego. I was attracted to this workshop because of the headlines, Mexico moving forward. And then I have a different interpretation than Leonardo. I see the traditional visuals as a background and Mexico moving forward towards innovative solutions. And then recapturing the moment, I got confused. Uh, What is really the moment that we are trying to recapture? I've heard so many Mexican moments, from the Salinas moment, from the Mexico miracle, from the Nieto. What is really the moment that this whole thing is trying to recapture? And along those lines, out of there, I heard the one recommendation from the panel so different. Okay, One is political leadership. Another one is rule of law. Another one is education. Are there really priorities from the government that would really help solve the problem of the country? Okay? Thank you. Uh, Okay. Thanks very much. And maybe we could take that other question at the same time. I noticed there were a lot of hands out there. I want to be able to get through as many as we can. Uh, So we'll take one more question, then we'll go to the panel for some answers, and then take another round. Go ahead, please. Uh, My name is Carrie Kahn. I just have a quick question. I go to Costco in Mexico City. And um, I want to buy a flat screen TV. And despite Mexico having 45 free trade agreements, and everybody touts that, why does it cost 30% more? And also, why is a Nissan Versa made in a Mexico, Aguas Calientes plant or wherever, cost $2,000 more for a Mexican to buy with less features than it does to buy in the US? Good question. Great question. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Turn to the panel for question for answers on either of those sets of questions. So, so I can let me let me take that one. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. So, 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 the economy is here, right? So, exactly. So, 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 so the answer is Mexico is a country that exports a lot of things. So, our manufacturers, and as I mentioned in the presentation, whenever there is a shock, so there is less demand. What you do if you have a business is you have to lower the price of that product. The way you do that if you're a country is you need to let the exchange rate go. You need to let the exchange rate move. Okay? When it moves, the exchange rate is a price. It's the price that Mexicans pay for imports. Our uh, people in the U.S. pay for Mexican exports. So what this, when, 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 changes, when prices change, they are sending you a signal. So if you go to the supermarket and eggs are more expensive, you should buy less eggs and buy more of other things that are in relative terms less expensive. So the fact that the the country needed to accommodate these external shocks by changing the exchange rate means that it's sending the signal that you should consume less products that that come from abroad. And we call those tradables. And they don't necessarily come from abroad. It's just the fact that you can trade them 
the fact that made uh, these, these, these goods to behave, uh, uh, the price of these goods to behave as it would behave in other countries, in, in, in other countries, exactly. So the bottom line of this is whenever there is a depreciation, all the things that can potentially be uh, export or import are going to change price. So all the TVs, it doesn't matter if they are made in Mexico or the cars, are going to change price just because you can always trade them. The, the important thing to look at when you're looking at inflation is what, what is going on with things that are not tradable. So with services, for instance, telecom, and with, all the, with education, with all of that. And you know what? What has been amazing now in Mexico is that the price of tradables has been coming down. So if you look at the price of telecom, for instance, in Mexico, that's a great example. After the reforms... You know, really, internet used to be very, very bad in Mexico and very expensive. And, and having a cell phone used to be very expensive. Now it's, it's coming down a lot. So, yes, uh, there is a lot of sectors of the Mexican economy, what we call tradables, that have, that have inflation way above the 3% or the 2.5% that, that we mentioned. But the key is that you have a lot of things in the services sector, what we call the non-tradables, which are actually having deflation. And this is when you compensate, the only thing that you have is you don't have inflation. You have what we economists call a change in relative prices. Things that uh, are tradable are more expensive. Things that are not tradable are less, less expensive. Uh, so that was the economist part of it. Then the, the other part, which is easier, is, <laughs> yes, it's not the, the Mexican. Let, let's, let's, let's stop talking about the, the Mexico's moment. Let, let's start focusing on how we make Mexico get, gather some momentum. You know, so that we can keep growing and growing and growing and stop having these false starts, you know, that, uh, that, that are many, many Mexican moments, right? It's like, it's, like, it's like this whole joke that, you know, uh, quitting smoking is easy. I've done it like 30 times. <laughs> so it's more or less the same, right? So we, we have one, something that is a continuum of things. So maybe it's not mo the momentum, maybe it's momentum, right? So. And maybe we can grab this one last question from the gentleman behind you. And then we'll turn back to the panel for the final responses. Thank you. I'm Greg Shannon, uh, Sedona Pacific. I'm a real estate developer working in Tijuana. And uh, a lot of the reforms that you've been talking about seem like they're trickle-down reforms. And I've read quite frequently where the Mexican moment kind of never even happened for, you know, 80% of the population that makes lower incomes. One of the things I've also noticed is that in the United States, housing policy is, a, is an engine of uh, economic activity and, and things. And my observation is, is that in, in Mexico, particularly Tijuana, housing is, is horrible. Uh, there's a, a big problem. But my observation is it's a capital market problem in Mexico, uh, not a production problem. Is there anything going on, or is that on the radar for uh, economic stimulus or bringing the Mexican moment to the lower income? Great. Thank you very much. So we've got a few questions here on financial reform, income distribution and poverty, uh, and housing quality and access to capital. Uh, we can just maybe go down the line and get responses and any closing comments you each want to make. Sure. And we so, need to be fairly brief. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. So just the reforms. I think that in general, the reforms are a step in the right direction. Some of them are big steps. Uh, the change to the constitution for the energy reform is a big step. Some of them are tiny steps with lots of problems, like, like the fiscal reform. Uh, somewhere along the middle is the financial reform. 
Uh, well, in Mexico has a big problem because we don't we don't use a lot the financial system. Uh, so not a lot of people has a relation with the bank. Maybe informality has a lot to do with it. But it turns out that there are many many problems. Education is one of the problems, whatnot. But one of the problems of the lack of financial inclusion in Mexico was actually that the law was not very good. So, of course, there's other things like the enforcement of contracts that I talk about, but just specifically about the financial law, there were many problems with it. So with this financial reform, the idea is to try to solve at least some of these problems. And just let me give you one example that is going to touch upon your, your, your question over there is, here in the U.S., it's very easy if you have a mortgage, uh, mortgage then that, uh, if, and if, if another bank, hopefully Bank of America, is, 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 offering, you a better, <laughs> is offering you a better rate... It's offering you a very rate. You simply just, you know, just call the bank and say, you know, I want to move with you. And that's it. Well, in Mexico, before the financial reform, if you happen to have a mortgage and, and somebody is offering you half the rate, you couldn't change. Just by law, you couldn't change. It was impossible. You would basically have to take out your guarantee and do it again and pay a huge fee to the, the notario. You know, it was impossible. With the financial reform, one of the big things that is just there in the middle of it is that now in Mexico it's it's easier to do this now finally if you if another bank is offering you a lower rate it's easier than before or less difficult maybe to move and and to change your mortgage so this is going to finally increase competition in that market so there was a big problem in that market you couldn't get a, a mortgage it was very high uh, the, the rate first because of macro issues the the inflation was very high now that's solved, but then there were micro issues like these legal problems. Now we just have to give time to the reform to work. Now, it's not the best reform. There are many things that still need to be done there. Uh, and again, and the problem in the financial sector is not only the financial law, it's the rest of it. And a big part of it is, again, enforcement of contracts. Right? If you cannot enforce a contract, it's very difficult to give credit to people if you just basically cannot enforce uh, the, the, the contract if they don't pay. So, so that, that's part of the problem. So that's, that, that, that's the missing piece. Thanks. Pablo, do you want to say um, No, I have to agree with Carlos. I mean, the financial reform, although it's not perfect, and it's what, not what we hope to, but it's giving access uh, to those people, to people. I mean, leasing a car here in the U.S. is easy as just stepping into a dealership and you get approved right there. If you don't get approved for a leasing, you might get approved for a finance, and your rates are if you have a good uh, credit score, it basically you pay almost nothing, and you can own that car for two years and then change it for a new one. And so the the economy here in the U.S. for that part it's extremely easy and it's extremely uh, navigable and uh, and not complicated. I think in Mexico for the whole mortgage system, the auto license and all of that, it's starting to change. But it's way, way, way behind what you guys have here in the U.S. Um, Thanks. I think it's very important what you said. The idea, and I, that's why I try to, to say in my lecture, that the idea that this uh, productivity rates, interest rate, the development, the economics, where is it going? We have to introduce the normative debate we have to talk about justice, about social justice in Mexico. That's the way 
they are going to really recover the legitimacy. Doesn't matter if, the, if they talk about, about this or that, but if they really do it, if we start to see some uh, less inequality in Mexico. I think it's important, even Mrs. Lagarde has said, said that it's important to talk at the international level about justice. I think we, we are avoiding this topic. Nobody wants to talk about it, and I think it's the most important topic today, not only in Mexico, but in the whole world. I would say I, I agree with my colleagues, and uh, I would say that the next step would be that um, we have to change the national mood. Uh, but to change, in order to change the national mood, we have to prove that the reforms are not just for the very powerful people or the very efficient sectors, but the, for the average people. That's the, the, the key point. Thank you very much. Th thank you very much. No, thank you all very much. I feel like uh, I both feel more enlightened about Mexico's moment and more confused about Mexico's moment than ever, which I think means that I'm learning about Mexico. And so thank you all so much for being here, and thank you all to our panelists. In my home. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.